Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, Mario Draghi of the ECB sent shockwaves through the foreign exchange and equity markets today. Basically, his big bazooka backfired in that he didn't deliver what the traders thought they had been promised. But remember, you know, it's very dangerous to just make assumptions based on uh, central banker rhetoric. I've always said, and I've been talking about this, when it comes to uh, monetary policy, if you look at Draghi, he always talks big about how weak uh, the economy is or how low inflation is and how we need more stimulus. And then he never really delivers uh, the, the dose of stimulus that everybody is anticipating based on his rhetoric. It's the opposite with Janet Yellen, right? She's been talking about, oh, the U.S. economy is doing great. We're going to have to raise rates, yet they haven't done it yet. Uh, so both of them overpromise and underdeliver when it comes to easing or tightening. And the big question is, is Janet Yellen going to surprise the market too? Because everybody was ready for the ECB to do a lot more. Well, they're all ready for the Fed to raise rates, and maybe the Fed isn't going to do it. Now, the ECB did, in fact, lower interest rates by 10 basis points from, what, negative 0.2 to negative 0.3. They did do that. But what they didn't do is increase the size of their monthly bond purchases. They didn't make the QE program bigger. Most people were looking for an additional $15 billion a month of bond buying and money printing coming out of the Eurozone. Now, what Draghi did do is extend the bond buying program by an additional six months, but he did condition that on if it's needed. And of course, if it's needed to get inflation up to, but not quite 2%. So basically extending the program doesn't really amount to anything because there's no guarantee that the ECB is going to continue the program until it's supposed to end. Because if somewhere between now and then 
they achieved their objective of returning inflation close to but not quite 2%, well, then they don't have to continue the program because the program would have done its job. Remember, Draghi is not even talking about QE or cheap money to create economic growth. It's all about creating inflation. That's actually the goal. It's not even like a means to an end. It's the end in and of itself. And so if they succeed in raising uh, the rate at which consumer prices are rising in the eurozone, well, then it's a victory, right? I mean, it's a very shallow victory because it's not going to help uh, the European economy, but it, it will get inflation. And again, when you listen to Draghi talking, he talks about their mandate of price stability. And we want to achieve price stability by making sure prices rise by 2% per year. See, the fact is prices are closer to stable now. What Draghi is actually doing is fighting against price stability. He does not want prices to be stable. He wants them to rise by close to 2% a year. Well, how is prices rising by close to 2% a year more stable than prices rising by less than 1% a year? I mean, it seems that it's we got stability. We're closer to stability now than where Draghi wants to bring us, right? Talk about Orwellian doublespeak where they change the meaning of the word stable. Stable doesn't mean the same. It means increasing, right? So that, and of course, we, we, we borrow a page from, from that rhetoric. I'm not really sure uh, who wrote it, uh, whether it started over there, over here. But everybody talks about price stability, even though what they want is increasing prices and what they are fighting against is price stability. But Draghi doesn't even really make it about economic growth. He makes it about inflation. And I think that we're going to get up to that level a lot sooner than people think. You know, the big divergence that everybody is trading on, everybody thinks is going to happen as well, you know, Europe is going to be tightening while the Fed is easing. Or rather, Europe is going to be easing while the Fed is tightening, right? They're going to keep doing more QE and we're going to raise rates. The reality is the reverse. The real divergence is going to be when the ECB starts tightening and we're still doing QE. That's what's going to happen. Because if you actually look at it, the European recovery is really just getting started. If you look at the numbers coming out of the Eurozone, they are getting better. They are getting stronger. The numbers in the U.S. are getting weaker. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later in this podcast. But if anything, the Eurozone recovery is just getting started and our recession is just getting started. Our recovery is grinding to an end. As bad as it was and as weak as it was, that's it, right? It's over. Turn out the lights. This uh, The U.S. party is over. So people have got it backwards as far as where the divergence is. There's going to be one, but it's going to be where the Fed is going to be the easiest uh, central bank on the planet. Uh, not the ECB or not China or not Japan. So everybody was prepared for, you know, uh, Mario Jaggi to fire this bazooka and announce all this money printing. And when it didn't happen, uh, there was a huge reaction in the foreign exchange market, in the equity market. By the time they rang the closing bell today, the euro was up better than 3% on the day, 3.1%. Huge move up in the euro. Moved three handles in one day. We closed just around 109 and a half. 
uh, in the dollar euro. But the dollar was weak across the board. It was down a little over half a percent against the yen. Uh, the British pound was up almost 1.4 percent. Aussie dollar up about 0.7 percent. Uh, New Zealand dollar up. Singapore dollar up about one and a half percent. So the dollar went down across the board based on the failure of the ECB uh, to commit to printing as much money as everybody had hoped. And the stock market went down. The DAX was down about 400 points, which was about three and a half percent. But in dollar terms, the DAX did a lot better than the U.S. stock market. The Dow was down 250 points. The low that I saw was was down 300 points on the day. We So we closed a little bit off the lows. But in a percentage terms, the Dow was down uh, about 1.4%. So in dollar terms, the Dow made a bigger drop than the DAX. You know, I was watching, too, on CNBC this morning, and the Dow started to sell off the Dow futures. And, and, and Joe Kernan, you know, he starts whining about it, like, well, why are we selling off based on what's happening over there. I mean, how clueless can this guy be? You know, doesn't he realize that it's the cheap money that's propping up stock markets all around the world? You know, we're counting on uh, QE out of Europe, out of Japan. I mean, if the Fed is going to be tightening, somebody's got to prop up the market. And everybody thought it was going to be the ECB. The ECB was going to carry the Fed's water because they were going to be stepping on the gas uh, as Gellin was supposedly stepping on the brakes. So when the U.S. markets found out we're not going to get extra money printing in Europe, that is bad for U.S. stocks. And of course, it was the fear of more debasement in the eurozone that made U.S. assets relatively more attractive. It, it, it made money go into the U.S. stock market, made money go into the U.S. bond market. That's why U.S. Treasury prices got clobbered as well today. It was a huge down day in U.S. bond market. Because all of a sudden, U.S. bonds now are going to be less attractive because the dollar is less attractive because the euro is going to be less ugly than everybody thought it was going to be. And so you saw a sell off across the board in in U.S. assets. Both stocks and bonds went down. And we'll see what happens tomorrow. And I'll probably uh, blog again or maybe do a video blog when we get the non-farm payroll report for November, which is going to be the final number that we get before uh, the Fed has to make a decision on raising rates. And who knows? I mean, we're down again, 250 points today, about 150 points yesterday. So it's about 400 points in the last two days. And remember, the Dow rallied 2,000 points off its September low. That's where it was when everybody thought the Fed was going to hike rates in September. And then when the Fed didn't hike rates, and then we got that bad uh, jobs number, we had a 2,000-point relief rally because the Fed wasn't about to raise rates. And now what's been holding up the market was the idea, well, at least uh, the ECB is going to come in uh, with all this money printing. But now that we're not going to get that, and if people still expect Janet Yellen to raise interest rates, well, we might lose that entire 2,000-point relief rally, in which case the rate hike is back off the table as if it was ever on the table in the first place. Now, we also got a nice reversal in gold, which overnight made a new low. I think we got down to 1045 uh, or so overnight, and we were still trading below 1050 this morning before uh, we got the shocker, at least shocking to everybody else. I mean, I pretty much was expecting 
uh, Mario Draghi uh, not to increase the, the size of the asset, pur- asset purchase program. Uh, but most of the currency speculators were obviously betting on uh, more money printing. And I always thought that there was enough pressure from other European uh, countries uh, for the ECB not not to do that. And, and it, it seemed to me it was more talk. And that's exactly what it was. And so when that happened, gold rose. Right now, in terms of euros, the price of gold was down, but it was up in dollars about 10 or 11 bucks. But the key was we made a new low for uh, a new six year low. But we took out some of the key, uh, res- a key resistant level. A lot of traders were looking at 1050. My bet is there are a lot of sell stops below 1050 that got triggered last night and this morning because people were trying to protect themselves in case the price went even lower. And then the fact that we got a reversal and the price of gold ended up rallying uh, and closing uh, substantially above that level, uh, that is a, a key reversal. You know, we closed back above 1060, I think 1062 and a half after trading, you know, 1045. I think that we might have even seen a bigger rally if it wasn't for maybe some hesitation to buy ahead of the non-farm number tomorrow. And there may be a delayed reaction, too, uh, to the weakness uh, in the dollar against the euro because the euro is still weak. Right. I mean, the monetary policy in the eurozone is still inflationary and still weak. It's just not as weak as everybody thought it was going to be. And remember, what I think the best environment for gold is going to be when the weakest currency is the dollar. I mean, gold does well when all the currencies go down, but for some reason, the dollar needs to be going down the most. Because if the dollar is going down more slowly than the euro or the yen, everybody assumes the dollar is strong, and now gold goes down, which is an asinine assumption. And obviously, it's not going to be able to persist that way. Ultimately, gold has to go up if currencies are weakening, even if the dollar is weakening less than all the other fiat currencies. But as I've been saying, we have the biggest problems in the United States. And so I do expect the dollar to be weaker than these other fiat currencies. And when they're all sinking, but the dollar is sinking faster, that's when the price of gold could really take off. But I want to talk a little bit about Janet Yellen's testimony today. She was up on Capitol Hill answering questions from you know members or some senators, uh, some representatives that were able to answer her questions after she read her prepared remarks. And again, she didn't commit to raising interest rates, but she sure talks as if that's something that the Fed is seriously considering and that they may in fact be doing it. And she is oblivious uh, to all of the negative economic news that keeps coming out in fact, I, I, meant, I, I meant to mention this on the, the, the uh, podcast yesterday, but when she was talking yesterday and she mentioned the forecasts for the fourth quarter, she was saying, well, most of the analysts, most of the uh, you know, uh, uh, economists are projecting about 2.5% growth for Q4. She didn't even realize that on that very day, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, with their Atlanta GDP Now forecast, had reduced their forecast for the fourth quarter GDP all the way down to 1.4%. So you got the Atlanta Fed predicting 1.4%. Why is Janet Yellen still talking about 2.5%? And you know, 1.4% is probably still too high. In fact, I think what the real shocker is going to end up being 
is that GDP in the Eurozone is going to be faster, right? The economy in Europe is going to be growing faster in the fourth quarter than in the U.S. because they're picking up and, and, we're, and we're slowing down. And nobody has, has bothered to figure that out yet, uh, least of all the Fed, or if they have figured it out, they're certainly keeping mum about it. But when she was up there today, she actually got a pretty interesting question. I don't remember who asked it, but he was reading a study that just came out today uh, from Citibank. And it was an economic projection for the U.S. And according to the guy who authored this, this he put the odds of a recession in the U.S. in 2016 at 65%. Now, that's the highest odds I've seen from any Wall Street, you know, you know, mainstream Wall Street uh, strategist, forecaster, 65 percent probability of a recession in 2016. And so this guy asked Janet Yellen, what do you think? Do you agree with this? Which, of course, is a ridiculous question. She obviously doesn't agree, because if Janet Yellen thought or was going to admit that she thought there was a 65 percent chance of a recession next year, she wouldn't be pretending she was about to raise rates. Right. How could she do that? So she answered the question by saying, no, I don't agree with it. I think the probability is much less, although she didn't say what the probability is. I mean, is it 30 percent, 25 percent, 15 percent? I mean, what does she think? We know that she think it's less than 65 percent. But this is where it got interesting, because then the guy said to her, well, what if they're right? What if we do have a recession in 2016? What tools does the Federal Reserve have to, you know, help mitigate the damage of that recession, to help fight the recession? And then Janet Yellen's answer was, well, you know, we have all of the tools that we've always had, all the tools we've used before. Yeah, she's really overestimating the effectiveness of those tools. And here's first she said that she said, well, if it turns out that we did raise rates, then we could cut them. We could lower them back down. So she didn't just immediately say, well, if we have a recession, we're going to lower rates, right? The assumption being that they've already raised them. Janet Yellen said, if it turns out that we did raise rates, right, which doesn't necessarily sound like somebody who is going to raise them for sure, because she's saying, if it turns out that we raised them, we'll lower them, right? So if we took interest rates from zero to 0.25 or 0.5, and then the recession starts, we're going to lower them back to zero. But what kind of boost are you going to get from that? Because you're barely taking them down. I mean, if the economy is, you know, is collapsing in recession and all you got is to reduce rates from a half a percent to zero, that's not a lot of stimulus as far as lower rates is concerned. But then what Janet Yellen also said is she said, plus we've got the asset purchase program that worked so well in the past, meaning quantitative easing. So she said, in addition to reducing interest rates, they can start up QE. They can launch QE4. Now, she didn't use the word QE4, but she basically said we could restart that program. And this is why. She said it works so well in the past. She said because printing money and buying government bonds works so well in the past, if we get another recession in 2016, we're going to do it again because it works so well in the past. Now, doesn't it occur to Janet Yellen that if the U.S. economy confounds her forecasts and actually goes into recession next year, which very well may happen, that would be proof 
that quantitative easing did not work. It was a failure. If it worked, then we wouldn't have a recession in 2016. But if we have one, that proves it was a failure. It doesn't mean you do it again. It means you go back to the drawing board and say, wait a minute, we did all this quantitative easing, right? And we thought we had a real recovery. But the minute we stopped the quantitative easing and tried to raise interest rates, we found ourselves right back into recession. That means it didn't work, right? That means it wasn't a permanent fix. It was just a temporary prop that only lasted as long as the prop was there. See, I've been saying all along that you can't say that quantitative easing worked until you end the program successfully, right? Raise interest rates back to normal, shrink the balance sheet back down to where it was before you started the program, and then you can say the temporary fix worked. But if you put us into this quicksand, right, this monetary road to hotel that we can never get out of, if the Fed finds that they have to launch QE4 in 2016 because we didn't reach escape velocity, that just by trying to raise interest rates or talking about raising interest rates was enough to put the economy back into recession? Doesn't that prove that it didn't work? It, to a normal person, yes, that's what it would show. It would show, wait a minute, we did quantitative easing three times, and the fact that we have to do it a fourth time, doesn't that tell us that it didn't work? Because according to Janet Yellen, it worked so great in the past, we're going to do it again. And then if we have to do QE5, does that prove that QE4 worked? If we have to do QE6, or seven or eight, right? How many QEs did they have to do before they admit that they were all a mistake? They were all a failure. See, the only reason that people think it's a success is because they think it's over. The whole rally in the dollar is predicated on the successful end of this program, the normalization of interest rates. If we're right back in recession in 2016, and now the Fed has to go back to the QE well, nobody is going to believe them anymore. It's going to be over at that point. There's going to be nothing that's going to stop the dollar from falling. And then when the dollar really starts to tank and commodity prices go back up, oil prices and everything else, and the cost of living starts to go back up. And then, of course, when you get the eurozone, they're going to start tightening. And I think even Japan is going to have to do something. But And we're going to be printing all this money and the bottom's going to drop out of the dollar. And now all of a sudden, inflation is really going to be picking up in the U.S. And, you know, unlike the Eurozone, they keep saying we have to keep it. They have to keep inflation close to but under 2 percent. We don't have any kind of 2 percent ceiling. We're going to be fine with 3 percent, 4 percent. To me, it doesn't matter how high the official numbers get. The Fed's not going to do anything because they can't because they put themselves in this box where the cure is worse than the disease, at least from their perspective, because if they raise rates, they implode the entire economy, this whole bubble economy that's built on this foundation of cheap money and asset bubbles. And so the Fed has to keep uh, the, those monetary spigots open. And that, when people figure this out and see that, then they know the dollar's a bottomless pit. And then it really starts to accelerate. And then, you know, then the, the Fed has got the choice you know really slam on the brakes jack interest rates way up and have a worse financial crisis you know dramatically worse than 2008 with no bailouts for anyone right massive losses or we have runaway inflation hyperinflation the dollar collapses instead because they don't have the integrity uh to do the right thing another thing that everybody seemed to ignore today including janet yellen was the much weaker than expected november ISM non-manufacturing index. Remember, I talked on yesterday's podcast 
about the huge and unexpected collapse in ISM manufacturing down to a six-year low in contraction territory right below 50, 48.6 or something like that. But everybody is hanging their hats on the service sector, right? They think, okay, we don't need manufacturing, but at least we have the service sector. And of course, the service sector, you know, that's where all we got the bartenders and the waiters and the cash register cashiers and all these low paying jobs and temporary jobs are in the service sector. Of course, the service sector, by and large, is not goods producing. And when people have jobs in the service sector, yet they still want to buy uh, consumer goods, uh, it ends up running up the trade deficit. The, the most important jobs are the goods producing jobs and manufacturing jobs. Uh, they're also higher paying jobs. So to write off the manufacturing sector makes no sense. In fact, I, I, there's some article I read the other day uh, which basically dismissed it and said, well, you know, if the world economy is slowing down and, you know, they don't want to buy our exports, well, I guess, you know, we could just make it on, on the service sector. We don't need manufacturing. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, but don't Americans want to consume stuff? Don't we need consumer goods? Why can't we manufacture the goods that we want, right? So if foreigners don't want to buy what we make, then we don't have to make anything. What about the $40, $50 billion a month trade deficit? Why don't we start making some of the stuff that we import? The whole idea that we can live without making anything. And if foreigners aren't buying the things that we make, how are we going to pay for the things that they make? Because we're still sucking in all these imports. I mean, right now, sure, they'll take our dollars because they're under the delusion that the dollar is going to get more valuable because they still believe the Fed's going to normalize interest rates. When they realize that QE4 is around the corner, why are they going to want our paper, right? They're not. I mean, they're just they're going to keep their own their own goods. But let me get back to the non-manufacturing number, because people are hanging their hat on the uh, service sector. Well, last month, we got an unexpected jump in the non-manufacturing number to 59.1. And that was a big jump, and everybody was excited about that. They expected it to cool off slightly in November to 58.2. Instead, we went all the way back down to 55.9, which was lower than where the index was when it spiked to 59.1. In fact, this is about the lowest level of the year. We're about tied with the lowest level from, I think, the first or second quarter of 2014. And if we go down a little bit more from here, I mean, we're going to get dangerously close uh, to the 50 level, which, would, again, if we get below that, that would show the service sector in contraction. And of course, if we get both the service sector and the manufacturing sector in contraction, it's not just going to be a manufacturing recession, it's going to be a total recession, in which case that 65% probability uh, that City is putting on a 2016. Uh, recession maybe is uh, maybe is it's too low. Maybe the probability is higher than that. In fact, in my mind, the probability is higher, and it will be higher if the Fed actually raised rates in December, because the December rate hike will put the odds of a 2016 recession that much greater. And again, remember, 2016 is an election year. Does Janet Yellen really want to risk? the economy being in recession in 2016? Because if we go into recession in 2016, chances are we'll still be in recession when voters go into the, uh, into the voting booths. Does she want that? Because if voters are voting during a recession, they're not likely to vote back the incumbent party in the White House. So if Barack Obama is president, right, which he will be, 
when people are voting and we're in a recession, they're not going to want to vote for Hillary Clinton because that's a continuation of the, the, the bad economy. And remember, Barack Obama through Hillary Clinton, right? The Democrats are going to want to take credit for taking the helm at the, of the economy when it was in terrible shape and, and then, and then uh, bringing it back to growth, right? They want to be talking about that success story. If we're back in recession at the end of the administration, we're back in the same hole that we were in in the beginning. So how do you take credit for getting us out of something if we're right back into it and you're still there? So the whole economic success story goes out the window if Janet Yellen allows the, re- the economy to slip into recession in uh, in 2016. So the only way she can probably mitigate the odds of a recession is not to raise rates at all in December or at all at any point in 2016. But there again is the box that she's in because she wants to raise rates to show that she has confidence in the recovery. And the rate hike is supposed to signify the all clear that everything is great. In fact, I keep hearing all these analysts on television. The Fed has to raise rates just to show that they're confident. Well, what if it's false confidence? So they're supposed to raise rates just to pretend they're confident, even though they're not, hoping that if they just send this false signal of confidence, it's like, look, if the ice is not solid, don't just put a a sign on the lake that says everything is fine. You can ice skate just because you want to pretend uh, that the ice is solid, because what if somebody actually skates and falls into the water and they, and they drown, right? You don't want people being confident about something when they shouldn't be. So should the Fed really be trying to engender a false sense of confidence when people shouldn't be confident? In fact, I've said before, if, you're, if you expect growth and we don't get it, if we get a recession and you make decisions based on false expectations, that makes the recession worse. Case in point, all the inventory that everybody has been building up because they believe the Fed. They've been preparing for a recovery. And when they get surprised by a recession, that makes it even worse. Had they been prepared for it, then the recession would have been more shallow because businessmen wouldn't have made as many mistakes because they would have gotten ready. Instead, they do everything wrong because they believe the Fed rhetoric. So this is the dangerous line the Fed is walking by bluffing the economic strength when they really should be preparing everybody uh, for the next recession. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is truth in media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with truthinmedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, truthinmedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make truthinmedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit truthinmedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth and Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. 
Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.